0: Hello and welcome. You're listening to Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast, exploring the latest thinking and key issues for leaders and those aspiring to lead. I'm Randall Peterson. I'm a professor in the Organizational Behaviour Group and the director of the Leadership Institute at London Business School. I am really thrilled today to be joined by Andrew McKenzie. Andrew's a former CEO, Of BHP, and he's joining us today to talk about some of the diversity issues that he faced in the role. Andrew, can you just tell us a little bit more about your background and experience that you're drawing from as we have this conversation?
1: Yeah, great, Randall. So you're right, I was a CEO at BHP from 2013 to, to 2020, and that was for me. The culmination, that sounds a bit grand, um, of a pretty long career in resources, um, nearly 40 years, where I worked for several companies in, in oil and gas, both marketing as well as their development, and as well, of course, as uh, metals and minerals. You know, I've had an opportunity now to reflect a little bit on that career, but particularly my time as CEO at BHP, which I was incredibly proud of. Uh, in the sense of getting the job. And it was a real privileged role to fulfil and I had a lot of fun. But, but once I left, I, I sort of realised that perhaps one of the things that I felt most positive about in terms of a business result and the business result it generated, as well as the simplification of the company, both its portfolio and its processes, was the, the way in which we changed our culture to becoming much more diverse, much more inclusive, and much more empowering of our people so that they brought their whole selves to work. And were able to work much more effectively horizontally across the organisation, across silos rather than up and down the hierarchy. And of course, we draw this a little bit uh, through changes in organisation and process, as I mentioned, and with technology, which of course always helped. But I think with hindsight, I overestimated the power of reorganisation and process change and underestimated the power of culture and and cultural change. And one of the biggest drivers of our cultural change, which which actually I wasn't expecting at the time, was a a commitment that we reached in uh, 2015 to get to gender balance in our workforce by 2025. At the time we made that commitment, we were sitting about 12 to 13% female. We've now taken that well over 25%. And at the current rate of progress, uh, I think we're pretty much on track. But I would accept my successor who maybe has a bigger task than me to get to that gender balance. But just pursuing that in a very high-level way really exposed the culture change that we had to do. And it, it helped us also, I think, think much more purposefully about why we came to work each day. We currently, and I think that's pretty special, have a leadership team which is, um, I think, about 60% female. It was 50% when I left. And that's in an industry that you would not expect would find getting there would be easy. And it's a team which is very diverse in terms of its ethnic origins, really covers all of the continents on the world and and all colours, I I would say. And I think part of that is why we recently became the biggest company in the FTSE by market cap. We really cut our functional costs by about 70%. And that wasn't by divestment or other ways in which we simplify the portfolio. It was actually just by getting a lot more effective. And while still growing the company, net debt was cut by twenty billion and we, we returned about thirty billion dollars of cash to our shareholders. So diversity, amongst
0: other things, did drive quite a good track record. Thank you, Andrew. One thing I want to highlight in what you said is this is an industry in which diversity has been historically a real challenge the data speak for themselves, for the kind of real progress you made in that time and and the journey that BHP is on. So if you could dive into a few more details here and if we could take political correctness and set it aside for right now, what are some of the real challenges of diversity in your experiences there? Things that you really were difficult in achieving what you achieved in the role?
1: Well, since I've come back to the UK, one of the things I've been struck by is the is some of the way in which we have the debates, uh, actually, around diversity and inclusion, and, uh, and indeed even about executive pay. I strongly believe that at our company, we lifted its performance by targeting diversity, gender balance, and also actually by making sure our pay was in sync with what society wanted we didn't do this just to look good or to be more moral, we did it to make more money. You know, and I strongly hold that a company that is clear about its social purpose, that flows with the world, will be more profitable, and hence more powerful in achieving its progress. It's not about virtue signaling, which is something I got accused from a little bit in Australia, or even a sense of fairness. It's just a common sense approach to progress and increase shareholder returns, And it's not about even trade-offs short and long term. Uh, I mean, more diversity and more social alignment, I believe, will drive higher profits, period. And I wish more people saw this rather than feeling that they had to engage in what I think is a little bit of a tick-the-box exercise where they say, well, we'll appoint a few more people to our board and that means we're done on diversity. It's the wrong way around. If you get it right and you do everything right uh, in order to not just change your board, but change your whole company, you will perform better in my view. And if we could get through that, then I think a lot more people would be more ambitious with some of the targets they're setting and spend more time
0: on them because it is a route to better business performance,
1: no doubt.
0: I guess I want to draw attention to the language that you use, which was diversity and inclusion. And we're talking about culture because it's that culture of inclusion as you diversify, that draws out that very best in the culture, and actually supports diversity. Although I am reminded of that, I think it's an old Peter Drucker saying that culture will eat strategy for breakfast. It doesn't even get to lunch. That culture is the, actually the thing that really drives so much of all this. And I guess the question I had is really about motivations for diversifying. You you talked a little bit about it. Can you say more? about your motivation and some of the other motivations that you maybe struggle with and why why you think the approach that you've taken works better or is better.
1: Well, I mean, just back to Peter Drucker's quote, I mean, other commentators um, have talked about that a bit differently, but I think there's a lot of belief in some cases that management don't make much of a difference. Strategy is about sort of shuffling the portfolio, making the right choices of things to invest in, and off you go. I don't believe that. We talk again about both inclusion and diversity. I think they feed off each other. I think we were very sharp about diversity. We wanted to hit targets, and we had targets at a granular level about the percentage of female recruitment, the percentage of female retention, the number of females at every level in the company, at each part of the company, per function or per region. And we looked at these things in a way that we knew where we had a problem and where we needed to do something about it. And that problem, almost certainly, was because we hadn't built the inclusive culture at the same time as we were pushing the diversity. Uh, I think if you build the inclusive culture, diversity doesn't happen automatically. You absolutely need to have those targets. But if you don't have the inclusive culture, then you will never meet your targets. And so the two very much feed off one another And we didn't do this because we thought that women were better than men at some things. Uh, I think that's a very dubious line to go down. It's quite sexist. We did it because we believed and we confirmed that more diverse teams, more inclusive teams perform better. And also, uh, back to my other comment, we also believe that leaders are remunerated in a way that's held to be fair. They feel empowered to lead better. Diverse and empowered teams have better discussions, Uh, they make better decisions, because they embrace wider thoughts, and of course, they make sure that the slots that they have to fill can be filled by a greater amount and range of talent, that if you only concentrate on a small, previously, if you like, favoured group, when you can recruit and retain talent from a larger pool, by including the large majority who've been excluded previously, then inevitably you will lift performance, and that's what we saw that the teams that really got on with diversity inclusion, we saw their safety improving, we saw their profitability improving, and that, of course, made it much easier to deal with the people who were critical because it made it clear this was something with a very strong business drive. And so uh, uh, maybe I should say a little bit more about what did we do. I mean, one of the things that we realised we had to do very early on was to be much more deliberate about flexible or dynamic working, which essentially meant that people could choose where, when and how they worked within the constraints you know, of the business. And we made that very much a local, almost an individual choice rather than changing a shift pattern. And we found that people worked amazing ways in which they could do that and made their life much more satisfying. And I know that that was a great preparation for living in a time of covid And of course, COVID has also helped to remind people that flexible working doesn't necessarily mean you don't work as hard. Sometimes you may work harder and you certainly work more effectively. And it was a very important um, measure that we needed to put in place to retain the increased numbers of women that we were bringing into and promoting in the organization. We also worked very hard to eliminate some of the pay inequities. And a lot of that is done by just promoting more women and getting a balanced workforce. But, of course, so often pay is assigned on the basis of what people were paid previously, in a previous job, in a previous company if they're recruited externally. And there, of course, you bring with it the inevitable discrepancy that's existed up to now between those levels of pay. So we kind of tried to take that off the table and said we will pay for the job. And if it meant that a previously, shall we say, discriminated woman got the job... You know, she might get a big pay increase. And that was fine because it was the pay very much for the job and, and we, we, we needed to work on that. We looked at job descriptions to make sure that they didn't have any bias built into them. And, of course, we did the usual things of encouraging as much as possible to have a good representation, diverse representation, the short lists for for jobs, both when we were doing things internally and externally. And then I suspect another one that was important, we realised, of course, that we did have elements of our culture you know there was a sexualization we had issues of um you know, harassment sexual harassment uh, in some cases you know sexual violence uh, that weren't getting reported and this was before me too and of course all the dreadful things to do with sexual innuendo and and we really tried to flush those out and there's no doubt the me too movement helped us with that to really address some of those issues um, across our workforce and make you know women in particular feel safer and more comfortable working for our company than they might previously have felt. And I think it's worked. And I I think it's very much the way that the world would have wanted us to do it from a kind of broader perspective. But it's also worked, as I've said, in terms of raw business performance.
0: I mean, you've really sketched out here a a massive agenda of things that need to be done. It's not just hire a few people who look different. There's a, a major agenda here of creating the right culture, monitoring it, Taking action when the old culture tries to reassert itself. It sounds overwhelming, maybe. It sounds like a big job. Put it in perspective. I mean, of, of all the things you were doing in that role, was this a major part of what you did? Was this a smaller part of what you did? How does this sit amongst the various priorities when you were in that all important CEO chair? Well, it grew in its
1: importance and the way I described earlier because it fed on itself. I mean, look. I took personal charge of it. You know, I chaired the committee that oversaw it. And we met regularly and we, and we commented on how we were doing. It wasn't my idea, by the way, to make the target. And I guess I thought at the time that was a sort of, um, maybe not secondary, but perhaps in the lower regime of my sort of top priorities, if I could put it that way. But as I saw its power to change the culture And the power that cultural change was unlocking. And to be honest, some of that I didn't realize until I went on my farewell tour and people told me about what what a big difference it had made and how it was delivering business results. Of course, it moved further up the ranking and I had no concern about giving it a very, very significant part of my time. And, And if I had my time again, I would have spent more time on it. I perhaps would have changed the organization less. And I would have worked even harder in culture, using things like gender balance to to drive it, because with hindsight it was so effective. So yeah, it did become a big and and quite important part of the activity. I mean, and and of course it moved higher up the performance targets that we gave to the organisation, and and you know, and we we were pretty forensic in seeing how people were doing several layers down, and we looked at heat maps and so on. And uh, and whilst we really didn't have. Have a direct correlation between gender balance and what you got paid we did monitor it and we did see whether it was related to other things and people were asked why they were struggling with that and whether that was related to why the fact they were struggling with other things so it became pretty major i would say and i have no regrets for that and of course the fact that it was directed to the whole organization meant that it, it, it built momentum And I think the problem with some of the push right now is that it tends to be more about the balance on the boards. I mean, that, first of all, is a problem because, uh, you know, in in governance terms, of course, it's the executive teams that run the company. It's the executive teams that most of the company look up to. And although a number of parts of this world seem to think that that boards run companies, uh, and of course, they do a very important role, the real... um, detail of making a business successful and changing the world happens within the executive teams and the people who report to them. And so it's great to have people on board who are role models and can also help, you know, encourage management and executive to shift things. But the whole point of it should be to actually change the whole company. And when you do that, you get a kind of sense of mission that comes from the success that we were able to gender. And, you know, you realise that the balance that we were talking about wasn't just about representation and pay, so important that is, but it was about a balance of power, and we had to kind of correct that. That meant dealing with a lot of the issues, systems, if you like, that had sort of built in certain favoritisms that people couldn't see, sometimes called unconscious bias. And it's not surprising, no one's wrong, but in a world that those systems have been constructed primarily by men and white men, it's not surprising that they will build in a whole bunch of things inadvertently uh, that makes it a little bit harder for people who want to come about things things from a different perspective. And then, of course, we had to deal with some of the other issues of balance that are important, which you can't fix as a company, no question. But I think for all the benefits that COVID have shown in promoting, as I said, flexible working, they've also exposed the, the lack of balance in things like um, sharing homework, sharing housework, uh, homeschooling, and so on, which of course you know does get in the way and, and does uh, cause you know, women as we found out not to perhaps want promotion when they feel that they have so much to do in an unbalanced home, even though it might be a balanced work. So you know, you get into all of those things you talk about them. you talk about you know the issues of domestic violence because you know you're dealing with the whole company. And that I think what I'm saying, that's why it is such a massive agenda. But one that I think is a very powerful intellectual construct to bring about positive change, not for us to feel good, but actually just to build an effective, fairer, and ultimately more successful
0: world and companies. Let's start with what I hear you talking about, which is the, the talent pipeline and the importance of having women in senior management roles, not just women on boards. We want both. And so I did a report last year, looking at the FTSE 100 over the last 20 years, we've made incredible progress on women in boards from about two or 3% up to coming up 30%. However, it's come at the cost of taking women out of the senior and of the management pipeline. And the percentage of women in senior leadership roles has actually declined in the last several years. So how do we stop? you know, just raiding the top end of the pipeline and not having enough women in senior leadership roles to achieve all of our goals here.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's it's very hard to to, to know what might have gone on there. But there's no doubt that if you want to be a very successful non-executive director, it does help that you have a long period of executive experience that culminates in some of the most senior jobs in the company. And even if you were wrongly in my view concentrating only on boards without strong talent pipelines feeding that and lots of women getting experience in what some people call the c-suite or the executive committee then you are going to stall in trying to get boards more equal and potentially you may actually start to see a turn down and so how do you stop it i mean obviously i think i kind of answer it the other way i think we need to put the firepower the expectations you know some of the challenges more firmly on the makeup of the executive team and well it's not necessarily giving up on boards but if it is a zero-sum game we'll clearly borrow from some of that board's uh, uh, drive onto the executive teams i don't think that's necessary because i have said it's such a a powerful intellectual construct that we can afford to devote more time to it as a world but use that extra time to work on the executive teams and the talent pipelines and getting those talent tight lines full and balanced is very important. And you know, and I guess that's an area where perhaps we struggled the most. We made a lot of progress. And, and even though I've given you some great statistics about what it was at the very top of the company, getting that level of balance to uh, ready people who might be feeding into those executive roles was taking a lot of effort as I left. And I'm a little bit out of date there. But it, it does require a lot of pressure on the, all the things we're doing. And probably that's an area where... You know, I think the inherent prejudice that can still exist in an organisation that even people who think they're for gender balance don't quite get needs to be addressed and called out. And I've had that called out for me and I can catch myself as well. Not to make people wrong, it's just that our systems have been built primarily to promote white men. And so what do we need to change to make sure that that doesn't happen in the future? And what is there that might be stopping us filling up our talent pipelines with an equal amount of women and men, but also increasingly very important, one that we've probably
0: did before we did women, uh, of a wide range of ethnic backgrounds. Thank you. And that's exactly the same conclusion we reached, is is about continuing to develop that pipeline. It's not just the ones at the top, but it's having continuous pipeline feeding that and, and continuing to focus on developing more women, Uh, more minorities into senior leadership roles wherever we can. And as we're talking here, Andrew, it's an inspiring story of a CEO who got it, who took action, knew how to make things happen, and made it happen. But of course, not many of us are CEOs. And not all of us are so lucky to have a CEO who kind of is so committed to these things. So what advice do you have for people who are in the organization? Maybe they're a a mid-level manager or what's the role of any of our listeners here in helping to move this agenda along? Okay, I just want to correct one thing you
1: say. You say knew what to do. I didn't know what to do, but through trial and error, I think I've learned what to do and I have to be quite deliberate about this. I didn't realize the power of it when I committed to it in 2015. You know, it, it felt right to me probably more from a sort of um, equity base, but I had not understood the power of it to lift the performance of our company and to change the culture in the direction I did want to do. So to some extent, I learned that if you want to change the culture, then you do need to work big time on diversity and inclusion in equal measure. And then that's when I started to get into the detail of what would make a difference. I think, first of all, it would help generally for people in civil society to acknowledge once and for all that changing the makeup of a board is not really the kind of major driver of conversion that people think. That you know, the, the people to get corporate governance and realize that if you want to make change, it's more important that you change the executive team because when you force change in the executive team, They, in order to deliver that change in a way that doesn't compromise business performance, will have to do all the things that we've been talking about on this podcast. Whereas boards just want to recreate themselves, as you say, I'm not sure it's correct. They'll just have to keep raiding talent pipelines, perhaps at a time when, when women would be able to develop further by staying within the executive frame. And I think that's true with a lot of things. We have to shift the attention more onto what the role the executive does civil society. I remember once when I unrelated this, I had a conversation with somebody after I gave a presentation on um, climate change. And somebody at the end of it came up to me and said, well, who on your board champions climate change? And I said, well, we have several. But I've got these people who are really important to me on my executive team. Yeah, but they don't count because they're not on the board. Now, it's just this misunderstanding of corporate governance does get in the way of driving this agenda. And I should stop there. But so what do you do Lower down. Well, I think you should acknowledge the power of inclusion and diversity and you should promote it in your company and you should be very confident that if you get it right, your performance as a leader will improve. You will learn from it and your organisation will improve as a consequence. Of course, you will make some mistakes and things won't always happen. So you need to ask for a little bit of forgiveness and all of this. It's not all going to be plain sailing, but you do have to work diversity, inclusion almost In tandem, you have to have targets, you have to have timelines, you have to incentivize your leaders to meet them and address therefore the issues of the lack of diversity now. But then as you incentivize people to meet, what are we gonna have, what do we have to fix? You know, it's not just about hiring a more diverse group. We've got to retain them, we've got to attract them. And that means you have to address all the issues of inclusion. And there's so many of them we've spoken on this call. And uh, I guess from our experience, We kind of learned in a more serial way, oh, flexible working in, oh, that's not enough. Oh, you know, now we need to do with um, ways of being, ways of behaving that, you know, that really are turning off a more diverse workforce. All the things we're dealing about why it's still not quite as easy as we think. And the little things all the way down to the fact that there weren't enough women's toilets, you know. I mean, it's sort of interesting. I always remember I went on one tour of a facility And the people in the facility, rather than wanting to show me all the mining and the pit and everything operating, wanted to show me the high quality of women's toilets that they'd installed as part of their push for gender balance. That's the kind of attention to detail that mattered. But I think you also have to be very honest about ourselves, that that we are, and, and people don't like this phrase, but we do have a degree of bias and some of it we can be conscious of it and some of it we don't know because of the way the system has been built in the past we don't need to be feel wrong about it or worried about it but we do need to find a way of confronting it in a way that will allow us to make progress so i think in conclusion have the targets and the milestones that push diversity and then have all the follow-up to affect inclusion in the way that you handle yourself
0: as a leader and be
1: honest about things when you make mistakes.
0: And the thing that I would also you know, emphasize in what you said was the importance of learning and being open to the idea that you're a learning organization, you're a learning person, and you won't necessarily get everything right the first time. That's very impressive you can say that on a podcast like this, but it's also really part of the secret sauce of a great organization more broadly is the importance of being able to, to learn and to continuously improve as you're working together. So any other things that we have not covered that you would like to raise, Andrew, about anything about your journey in improving uh, and working on diversity here?
1: I think I've said more than I expected to be saying, and you clearly have a huge commitment to it. I do believe that this is something that is not just about companies, it's about, Society as a whole. And I think our willingness to address this will determine the pace with which we can continue in a positive way, civilization's arrow. And I just wish more of the discussions were about that as a positive thing rather than, as I said at the start, you know, some sense of fairness or, on the other sense, injustice. Or people feel that you're just doing it because it's a way of looking good in a sort of narrow sense as opposed to a way of delivering a great result for shareholders and hopefully a great result if you like for society in line with your purpose as a company it's just a very powerful intellectual construct and we all but I think we also need to be very humble about it I mean people in the past didn't have that intellectual construct so they made even more mistakes than we will make now Uh, but we formed that intellectual construct and it's a sort of it's, it's a sort of resource within our society uh, to drive change, which means that we can be, it's a slightly um, pejorative word, enlightened about things. And not because we're better, but because we just have built this construct, which I think will really help drive progress. But we should be very, very understanding of people in the past who didn't have the power of that construct, which is getting better and better all the time, almost by the year. And I do think it's a very, going to be it should be a very important guider as to how we build back post-COVID and train back, I guess, as well.
0: Thank you. And thank you for sharing your inspiring story and experience with our listeners. I know that they will have taken away lots of ideas and thoughts about how they can move their organizations a little further along on this journey as well. You've been listening to The Leadership Playbook, a London Business School podcast. If you've liked what you've heard, subscribe to the podcast. Just search London Business School in your podcast app of choice. To receive a curated selection of articles, podcasts, and films directly into your inbox each fortnight, subscribe to THiNK at London Business School, the place to go for thought leadership and business insights from London Business School's faculty and alumni. Just tap the link in the show notes.